News, weather, traffic, money, politics, big interviews, and bold opinions. It's what's happening right now. This is Mornings with Simi. So many questions in Ottawa these days. Now, we know the Prime Minister has apologized again, for impropriety in awarding that massive youth summer jobs contract to the WE Charity. Turns out the WE Charity had been paying speaking fees to members of the Prime Minister's family. Uh, but this is not over yet. Global National Ottawa correspondent Abigail Beeman joins us now with more. Good morning, Abigail. Good morning. So yesterday we heard that there's that parliamentary committee with all these hours of testimony from a minister, from senior bureaucrats. What did we learn about how this contract was awarded? A few interesting things came out of those, as you say, hours of testimony at the Finance Committee yesterday. I'll start with what we learned from the minister responsible for the program, Bardish Chagger. She told the committee uh, that had this program grown and, and been developed, uh, we stood to make $43.5 million. That's a significant number because it's more than twice what the federal government had previously talked about. You often heard the number $19.5 million yeah, be, being flo- floated around. So Chagger explained that that was for the initial launch start of the program, but that had it been developed, it, it stood to grow to, for- to grow to $43.5 million. This is, of course, all part of the $900-plus million program uh, uh, in general, but she couldn't answer all the questions in terms of, you know, how many positions might be available uh, and, and a lot of other questions around that. Um, moving on to the testimony from the senior bureaucrat who actually picked up the phone and called we, that's a woman named Rachel Wernick, and she was really grilled uh, by members of the opposition over the timeline here. And we did get some interesting information, which really just led to some more questions. But uh, if you if you can bear with me on that uh, timeline, Rachel mm-hmm. Wernick said that on April 19th, she picked up the phone and called we, talked to them in broad strokes about what the government may be looking for. Nobody knew the details at that point yet, but they knew that it would be a big program that needed to be carried out uh, quickly. Uh, And she learned that we had already been reaching out to government officials and ministers about a different separate social entrepreneurship and youth program, uh, which she learned in that conversation may be able to be adapted to what the government was looking for. When she gave that bit of testimony, you could hear a conservative MP audibly, you know, groan about this. It was a, a, a sort of a bombshell oh, a p- piece of information, right? So yeah, you, exactly. You could uh, assume what questions followed. Um, so that was April 19th. Then April 22nd, the Prime Minister makes the announcement about this summer grant program in specific. And the very same day, Craig Kielberger, one of the founders of WE, emails Rachel Warnick a detailed proposal uh, for exactly what the Prime Minister had had been calling for and things developed from there. Okay, so no other organization <laughs> was considered? Like it was just a couple of phone calls between people? Uh, that's a good question. There were a lot of questions around that. Rachel Wernick and some other officials talked about how, yes, they did ta- uh, think about or speak with uh, or speak about, not speak with, important distinction there, yes. but they talked about some some other programs or some other, pos- some other potentials, but that uh, through the programs or the organizations that they work with through the Canada Service Corps were already struggling under the weight of the coronavirus pressures to carry out what was already on their plates. And she uh, backed up what we had been hearing from the Prime Minister and from uh, public uh, or from elected officials that they they believed we was really the only organization that could carry this out. Um, 
um, to scale and with the network that we had. Rachel Wernick talked a lot about that, how we has, you know, I think she mentioned 4 million youth followers on Facebook. Mm-hmm. Uh, she was adamant that, yes, we was, was the only group um, that could could carry this out to scale. And again, in the really tight timeline. Um, and she uh, she, she was she was uh, also spoke about, you know, these were 12 hour days. We were working flat out. She was really grilled about, you know, who where did we come up? Who first suggested yeah. we as a potential? Uh, and she as far as she would go was to say that she believed. But again, these 12 hour long work days working from home complications. She was really treading around this. Uh, she believes it was Department of Finance officials that said some Department of Finance officials. She gave a name for who led the project, but she did not want to go as far as to say as that person was the one who brought up we. Um, and another thing to note is that she also stressed that or she also said that nobody else came forward with a proposal. So on that April 22nd, when the prime minister makes the announcement, she gets this detailed proposal from Craig Kielberger. No other organization came forward, she said, uh, with with those details. Opposition members also grilled her about whether there is a competitive process in place for these types yeah. of things, whether that needs to be in place. As far as I understood from her testimony, she said that, yes, competitive processes can happen. They don't always happen. They don't need to happen. And they certainly didn't happen in this case, which, again, she went back to the tight timeline, the huge need to scale, all of those things. So a lot of questions came out yeah. about that. And she certainly got a tough uh, grilling from the opposition. Oh, boy. All right. Abigail, thank you. Thanks. That's Abigail Beeman, our Global National Ottawa correspondent, bringing us up to date on that. Interesting that it was the Department of Finance officials that brought this up because, of course, we know there is a problem with Finance Minister Bill Morneau, given the fact that his daughters also worked for We Charity. So there's more to come on that, I think you can bet for sure. This is Mornings with Simi. Well, this unemployment in this pandemic has been widespread, but particular sectors have been hit pretty hard. And when you dig a little deeper into those numbers, it also turns out one particular group has been hit very hard, and that is women. A new report from the Royal Bank of Canada shows that women's participation in the labour force is now at its lowest point since the 1990s. Let's dig a little deeper into those numbers now. Joining us is Don Desjardins, who's the RBC's Deputy Chief Economist. Don, thank you for being here. Oh, great. Thanks for having me, Simi. So tell me about this uh, deep look that you guys took into these numbers. How much more are women being impacted by this? Well, of the job losses between pre-COVID, so in February, and the latest data we have in June, they've accounted for about 56% of those job losses. That's a lot. It is a lot. And are there particular reasons for that? Yeah, I mean, we we try to look at uh, the issue in the sense of, okay, what does that mean? And one of them, of course, is because of the industries that women work in. Uh, Women are a lot more present and work a lot more in the services sector industries. And as we know, uh, this is a totally different recession that we're experiencing. Uh, COVID-19 and all of the policies we've had to implement to contain and hopefully eradicate that over time has very disproportionately hit the services sector of our economy, which is odd because during recessions normally, is the goods side of the economy that usually starts to crack and falter, and then the services follow. So this is different. And so that's why some of these job losses, really, it's because of the the industries women work in. And when we looked at where were the biggest declines, um, three of the five industries that showed the biggest declines 
were ones that were dominated by women. So, so that was one of the, the reasons uh, we would say that it has disproportionately uh, hurt women this time around. And do we expect that to change or do you think there are more factors here that could impact this long term? You know, the one thing uh, we're looking at is as we go forward, um, even though we know we are making strides towards reopening our economies, there's still going to be certain industries that we think we're going to have to lag simply because we will have to have, you know, social distancing policies in place. And that's going to curtail capacity in some of these service sector industries, hospitality, tourism, retail. And so that means not as many workers will be called back, at least initially. And so when we were looking at what this might mean, our, our, our concern wasn't so much that it was disproportionately hitting women right now. It was more, what does that mean for the future? You know, this is disrupting our entire economy. Mm-hmm. So we were trying to think of, okay, so, so we were, as we discussed, you know, why? Well, one of it was the, the um, industrial composition of our economy and, and where women work. So that, okay, that made sense to us. But then we we're trying to think, okay, so what does it mean as we move forward, as we go from reopening to recovery? And I guess our biggest concern there is that, A, the businesses that they are involved in, some of them are going to reopen more slowly. So you could see some discouragement factor there, thinking, well, I'm not really going to be able to get a job because of what I do. And does that say, well, we'll I'll just ride this out without a job. And then you become detached from the labor market. The other thing we noticed was, and I think we all know this, you know, women in general tend to make lower amounts of money than men. We have more part-time workers. So when we looked at some of the government programs and absolutely needed programs that were there to to bridge us through this very deep downturn, Mm -hmm. you know, women tended to be fully replacing their incomes with things like the Canadian Emergency Relief Benefit. So that CERB payment, that for many women did in fact totally um, replace their incomes. They're thinking, okay, now... Here you have these health concerns that are prevalent, top of mind for everyone. And as well, of course, women are more likely to be responsible for childcare. Yeah, I feel like childcare is the huge one here too, right? That if they're yeah. if they're not going to be making very much money, if they're only going back to work part-time and they don't have childcare, where is the incentive for them to get back into the workforce? That is exactly it. So we're saying, okay, so now, and we're still living under that uncertainty. We don't know. You know, yeah. what's a childcare situation? We don't know what schools are going to look like. So we have all of these sort of uncertainties. And will that also work to say, mm, maybe I'm going to have to, you know, pivot and put my career on hold, staying home to even assume more of these mm. responsibilities. So for us, it's more, okay, you can accept that the types of businesses women are working in, we've had to, to pull back. But it's more, what does that mean for the the future? And how do we ensure that women remain engaged in the labor market? Because our past research showed us that if women's participation was the same as men, it would be like $100 billion of additional GDP every year. So that's a lot. Yeah. Um, And we want to keep that momentum. So that is sort of what we want to highlight with this report is that, yes, you know, it certainly has been tough and, and will continue to be in the near term, but how do we look forward and say, okay, how do we keep these women engaged and is make this, sure they come back? Is this also, Don? do you think why childcare has become such a huge issue? I find that that's really come to the forefront during this pandemic, right? Where businesses now are saying, hey, we need better childcare. 
Yes, absolutely. I think that is exactly it. And, and you know, the uncertainty of it all. So, you know, what can we do? And we're just trying to think through some of the perspective things we could do. You know, what can governments do? How are they going to be able to amp up the amount of child care that's available and also make it financially reasonable for people? Because as those spots get more um, sparse, you know, you may see more competitive pressures on the pricing of it. Additionally, it's how do we keep the whole situation flexible so that businesses, when they're thinking about their workers, they say, okay, we need to make everyone's job have some flexibility in order for both parents to be able to contribute to taking care of the household mm-hmm. responsibilities and, of course, childcare being a key one there. Do you think that this um, economic situation, this unemployment situation, is reworking the workforce overall, like moving forward? I mean, that, that is the concern. We, you know, we want, I mean, we know some parts of it are definitely going to change. You know, we're going to be more digital, more mobile. Um, we're probably going to see a prevalence of work from home because some of these businesses, which, you know, before we'd say, oh, can't do that. Now, you know, we've tested it and we know people can work from home. So I think some of those structural changes mm-hmm. are here to stay. Um, so it'll just be how do you know how do we bring that and include women in each of those particular changes, structural changes to our labor market. All right, Don, fascinating stuff. Thanks so much for talking to us. Oh, thanks, Amy. Thanks for having me on. That is Don Desjardins, who's RBC's Deputy Chief Economist, uh, talking about uh, w- women's participation in the labor force survey that they did that shows essentially that that is now at its lowest point since the 1990s because of the pandemic and employment situation uh, we all find ourselves in. Childcare being the huge issue here. And I've never seen this happen before, but I'm hearing it more and more from businesses, from big business groups as well, big companies saying, we have to help solve this child care problem. Otherwise, the workforce can't return back to normal. If you want to weigh in, Simi at cknw.com. This is Mornings with Simi. When the lockdowns first happened and everything shut down, there was a real effort to make sure that people still supported local businesses. I shouldn't even use past tense. I think a lot of people are still doing that, like uh, takeout Wednesdays, right? Making sure that even though businesses were closed, rec- like restaurants, and you couldn't go sit there, you still ordered takeout. Great idea. Lots of people did that. But what about food trucks? I mean, we've had food trucks now for 10 years. They are or were in regular times hugely popular. But for them, during this pandemic, it's been a different situation. Our Nikki Reitmeyer takes a look at that. It's the time of year when typically British Columbians would spend their summer days at concerts, street festivals, block parties, fireworks events, rodeos and parades. And feeding all those hungry people, more often than not, are long lines of food trucks. Serving everything from savory favorites to sweet treats. But of course, with a limit on crowd sizes this summer, most of those events won't be happening this year. So where does that leave the food trucks? Sam Perro is the cannoli king. He operates a bakery, and seven years ago, he started a food truck that sells Sicilian-style cannoli. We basically lost all of our mainstay food truck events. We have four or five that not only were we a part of, but we're also a sponsor in, in one of them. So it was definitely a big, big hit to us. 
But just how important are those big events to food truck operators like Sam the Cannoli King? Oh, those are like 80% of our 80% of our business. So being parked on the side of the road, where you may more frequently spot a food truck, only makes up about 20% of their business. The big bucks are at those big events that we just simply won't have this summer. Well, Italian day, huge day for us. Columbia Street food, huge day. P&E, obviously that's two weeks of big, you know, big revenue numbers, right? These are massive, massive events. And most of the food truck industry makes most of their money at the Calgary Stampede. That's their big kickoff to the whole season. For more information, I reached out to the president of the Street Food Vancouver Society, Simon Cotton. Simon also operates the Reef Runner food truck, and he owns the Reef Restaurant on Main Street. The pandemic has been catastrophic to the food truck industry. The food truck situation is dire because, in a nutshell, from basically April through September, critical mass is important to being a profitable business. When the pandemic has taken away 100% of the large function events like, you know, Pride or Folk Fest. And he added that for those operators lucky enough to have a downtown permit, business has been better than for others. But with fewer office workers filling towers, fewer people are taking lunch breaks, a former staple of food truck street business. So at the end of the day, food trucks have been decimated. Simon said it's not just a matter of being able to drive around Metro Vancouver chasing whatever crowd may appear, because for each municipality, you need to hold a business license to operate. And that gets expensive. It's just cost after cost after cost. And there has seemed to be no relief in sight. One place where the pandemic has generated business is by corporations thanking their staff and treating them to lunch from a food truck. Teachers, uh, appreciation of grocery store workers from some businesses where they've, they've rented a food truck and they've been able to come out and you know feed the staff of the people who've been working very hard uh, during that March, April, May. Simon said that some business is starting to return now that people are coming out of hibernation again. Small weddings, backyard parties. He said it's been a trickle of business, but added an event too small isn't worth the expense it costs to run the truck. The point is that you need critical mass to be a profitable business in, in any in any business, whether it be hospitality or food trucks. Food trucks, you know, do well by events. And as Sam, the food truck operator that I first spoke to, said, even if the government allowed those large events once again, would people like you and I even feel comfortable enough to attend? It's not even just the fact of what the government or the, what the province is doing. It's also the people. Like, do, you, do they feel comfortable in going to a venue with 250,000 people? Like, that's the other problem. So on our end, we're also very leery on even attending that event because there's so much prep involved that is it worth it? Are people coming out or are we just basically wasting all our food costs? So what might the future of the food truck industry look like here? Simon, the president of the Street Food Vancouver Society, said that like so many other industries, they need financial support. The food trucks need help. 
this food trucks need government assistance and designed specifically for government assistance, whether it be feds, provincial, or, you know, probably more importantly, um, city help. The margins in hospitality are pretty small anyways. Food trucks, you know, really quite, you know, do well or well enough from April to September. It's challenging right now. So you'll you'll definitely, just like in the restaurants where people are closing, you'll definitely see some food trucks that are not coming back. But he added, with every challenge comes ingenuity. Some food truck operators are organizing drive through festivals in more suburban areas. People feel comfortable going because they're relatively COVID-19 safe. Hopefully, these clever tactics are enough to stay afloat in an already tough business. For 980 CKNW, I'm Nikki Reitmeyer. This is Mornings with Simi. 175 people died of illicit drug toxicity in June, and that's the highest number that this province has ever seen in terms of substance-related deaths. That is Lisa LaPointe, the lead coroner for the province of British Columbia, speaking with our Jill Bennett yesterday. We wanted to talk more about this, about what has happened here in BC. What about all the efforts that have been made over the last three or four years to fight the opioid overdose epidemic? So joining us now is Guy Filicella, peer clinical advisor with the BC Centre on Substance Use and Overdose Emergency Response Centre. Guy, thank you for being here. Uh, Morning. Thanks for having me. Uh, I guess those numbers don't surprise you. No, uh, you know, it's, it, 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 I'm not shocked by it. It's, you know, I, I think, uh, you know, the province has done, um, we're in the harm reduction epicenter of Canada, but um, the one missing component is addressing the toxic drug supply that's uh, just saturated the province and, and the country. And until we, you know, make uh, an immediate access to a safer drug supply, we're going to continue to see these numbers rise. And when you talk about the poison drug supply, do you think that's a direct result of the pandemic? Well, I think the pandemic has, has made it increasingly worse. But, I, you know, it just goes to show that, you know, when fentanyl actually started hitting the streets in 2012, there was there was still the option of, of people, you know, purchasing heroin. That option doesn't exist anymore in 2020. You know, really, if you look at the, um, the, the, the statistics, fentanyl is, is, is the killer and, and, and nobody's dying of, of heroin anymore because there isn't any. And so day by day, it's, you mm-hmm. know, completely unpredictable. So, Guy, do you th- so have the habits of people changed, or is it just the drugs that have changed and become more poisoned? Well, the the drugs have changed, but also, you know, people's drug patterns have changed because fentanyl wears off so much quicker than um, uh, uh, fentanyl wears off more quicker than heroin. So, mm-hmm. people are repeatedly using, you know, uh, two three times every hour and a half. Uh, whereas heroin you might use once or twice in, in four or five hours. All right, so that, that, those two things you think have combined to put us where we are? Yeah, most definitely. So a poison drug supply, is a message not getting through to people, to the users as well, about the, the dangers here and, and the problems with the drug supply? Well, you know, when 
you know, it's so complex. It, it's not just as simple as, as people using drugs. There's a lot of different reasons why. And, you know, most people that are using are uh, impacted by, you know, sexual abuse, physical abuse, verbal abuse. Mm-hmm. It's not, not every, you know, um, it, you know, people are, are, you know, really struggling in the midst of poverty and homelessness. And, and so it's, it's, it's just a lot more, uh, complex than, you know, you know, just using it, it's, it, it's got, it's got trauma reasons behind it, which are, um, make it challenging for people to, to move forward. What is the best way to approach this? And we know that the, the provincial government has been trying the safe supply idea, but it sounds like it's on a very small scale. Yeah. We, you know, we need multiple pathways to uh, a safer drug supply and, you know, taking it, uh, you know, for some people, it, they might need to see a doctor to get a prescription, but I also think that there needs to be other pathways where you don't need a prescription, more of a regulated supply uh, that people can go in and purchase it. I mean, obviously, if you look at the drug policy and, and the war on drugs, it's it's actually costing this, uh, the taxpayers just billions of dollars. Um, you, you know, the safer supply would would definitely cut those costs uh, in half and save lives in the process. Do you think the appetite is there to take those steps now, finally? Yeah, well, I mean, I I have to be optimistic. I mean, I believe, you you know, since 2003 when Insight, that was a big landmark thing. And Mm -hmm. then if you look now, uh, 17 years later, the next biggest thing was these risk mitigation guidelines. You know, we've gone to, you know, I'm not, I, we can't wait another 20 years for something else to materialize. You, you know, the, the time is to act now. And, um, you know, you know, it's, it, it's not going to get any better. And if we don't address the, the contaminated drug supply, then people will continue to die. Guy, thank you for your time on this this morning. Uh, thanks for having me. That is Guy Filicella, the peer clinical advisor with the BC Centre on Substance Abuse and Overdose Emergency Response Centre, uh, responding to the numbers yesterday that came out from the corner of the province, 175 opioid overdose deaths. That is a unfortunately record number that we have seen in the months and months, now years, of the overdose of the opioid epidemic. This is Mornings with Simi. People have been doing a lot of different things to stay busy, right? During the pandemic, during the lockdown, oh, they were baking banana bread. They were binge watching all sorts of TV shows. Started off with Tiger King, but now that seems like so long ago. Oh, they were making sourdough bread. And then people were joking that, well, maybe there was also going to be a baby boom nine months from now if people were all, you know, stuck at home together. Turns out, though, maybe not. A researcher at UBC says that people are actually having less sex since the pandemic hit. So when we saw that, we thought we got to ask some questions about this. So Lori Brado joins us now, the executive director of the Women's Health Research Institute and Canada Research Chair in Women's Sexual Health at UBC. Lori, thank you for being here. Thanks for having me, Simi. I'm kind of surprised by these results. I think a lot of people were because a lot of the original speculations were that, well, with all this time on our hands, everyone would be having more sex. But that does not seem to be the case. Okay, so did you ask people about this? Like you got them to talk about their sex lives? 
We do. And as a sex researcher, this is fairly routine for me and my team. Uh, but what we did was we launched a Canada-wide survey using validated surveys so people could respond to the survey anonymously. Um, and we asked them about various things about their sexuality, including the frequency of their sexuality, if that was a change from pre-pandemic, and then whether they were having sex um, and, and they didn't want to be having sex. So sex perhaps because they felt pressured to, or in more significant cases where they were, they were having non-consexual uh, sex. So they were feeling forced to engage in sexual activity. And so we recruited a sample of about 900 Canadians, um, men and women and people of other genders. And then we've been following them, repeating the surveys every month or so as the social distancing guidelines have been relaxed. Okay. And tell me what you found. Well, we're still uh, cleaning the data, and it's quite an extensive database, but the initial findings would suggest, yes, counter to those uh, original speculations, that because of probably stress, um, financial strain, as well as other emotional um, changes related to the social distancing guidelines, that people are having less sex, that their desire for sexual intimacy has gone down, um, and that the sex they're having feels a bit more of an obligatory sexual activity, again, because of this um, maybe societal pressure that we should be having more sex, but we really don't want to be in in this uh, current situation. I wonder, has the novelty, do you think, worn off? Like in the beginning, it was, oh, look, we're all home together, but then as the weeks go on, I think more stress, more anxiety kind of comes into play. Yeah, and that's one of the questions that we are asking over time, um, especially since uh, there's, you know, fairly widespread recognition that this is this is going to be our new normal for the long haul. And uh, and this is most certainly a chronic stressor. And we know that chronic stress can change our brains in fundamental ways and in ways that directly affect our interest in sexual activity. So we'll probably be seeing the ripple effects of this pandemic and, and specifically it's the social distancing guidelines for quite some time. So have you seen this kind of result before, Lori? For instance, you know, in 2008, in the recession, when economic anxiety hits, is this kind of what happens? Yeah, absolutely. Now, we need to keep in mind that there's always a small subset of people that respond quite differently in the right. face of stress. Um, and for again, for a small subset, sex can be a coping strategy to deal with stress or depression. But for the vast majority of people in the face of, of a stressor, and we've seen this with past pandemics as well, um, that it does wreak havoc on one's interest in sex and, and even in one's sexual function. So their ability to perform and experience arousal during sexual encounters. Okay, so there will not be a baby boom, it sounds like. I don't think so. Um, I, I, I would be quite surprised if, if there is. Isn't that interesting that people respond so differently, right? Because when we have those big weather storms or people stuck inside and under uh, in other circumstances, we do see that result. Well, and I think we need to keep in mind that this is a chronic stressor. This was not a, you know, two-day uh, right. <laughs> pan- pandemic this is, um, and, and we know that there are permanent and, and lasting changes that can happen to our stress response system, to the parts of the brain that regulate sexual function, to our hormones and neurotransmitters. Um, and so, yes, I agree with you that maybe with short-term events, um, we might see different effects, maybe an increase in sexuality, but that's not, that's not the case with chronic stressors. So moving forward then with your data, you're going to do regular check-ins. What are you looking for? 
so we're very concerned, um, first and foremost, about rates of, of unwanted or non-consensual sexual activity. Mm-hmm. And so it becomes really important that anyone who finds themselves in a situation where they're feeling victimized, um, that they reach out and ask for help because help is there. So that's first and foremost what we're interested in. Um, and we're also interested in unpacking the prevalence of these um, unwanted no- and, and coercive encounters from maybe the more common uh, uh, unwanted sex, but that's still consensual. So sort of looking at these people who might feel an obligation to have sex with consent, but still with with low desire. So there's a lot of findings that really need some unpacking. Was this something that you kind of started as soon as the pandemic hit, where you thought, listen, we've got to work this into our research here? Yes, absolutely. And, uh, and, and again, following in the footsteps of past pandemics, where researchers have been quite quick to track changes in mood and anxiety and quality of life, uh, we felt that this was an opportunity for us to collect some some uh, good scientific data, and of course, data arms us um, against myths and stereotypes that, um, that that people might face. Do you find that you're doing that a lot, correcting this particular myth and stereotype? Absolutely, yes. And you know, thankfully, we do have some good data. Also, the Kinsey Institute in the U.S. and and other centers around the world have been looking at this question in various ways. So, I think at the end. We'll have some some good scientific information to guide what happens in, in future pandemics. All right. Well, thanks for talking to us about it this morning. My pleasure. Thanks for having me. That's Laurie Brado, the Canada Research Chair in Women's Sexual Health at UBC, uh, joining us to talk about this national study that they undertook when the COVID-19 pandemic hit. There initially, like we're talking back in March, you know, there was all these jokes about how, well, there's going to be a baby boom come December and into next year because everybody is stuck at home. But what Laurie's research has shown is that's not the case. It's not going to happen because of the And I can see how this works, right? The economic stress, the anxiety over that, the unemployment, everything that's happening in the world. People are having actually less sex than they were having before the pandemic hit. This is Mornings with Simi. So big news for renters in BC in the last 24 hours that we've heard. The ban that has been in place on evictions is going to come to an end in September and rent payments that people may have been deferring, well, they will have to be paid back by next summer in monthly installments. Now, that might come as a shock for a lot of renters out there. We are going to be talking more about this with Housing Minister Selena Robinson coming up in just a few minutes. But right now, let's get a bit of the landlord perspective. Joining us is Landlord BC CEO David Hutniak. David, thank you for being here. Thank you. So is this what landlords were looking for? Well, you know, I want to start by saying, uh, Simi, that uh, obviously these are unprecedented times, and I think under the circumstances, you know, the province has done a solid job uh, navigating through this crisis, uh, and that includes for renters in our sector. Uh, I mean, at the end of the day, this is a health crisis, and we're all in in this together. And, you know, really, uh, throughout this process, Minister Robinson and her team uh, have been very consultative with our organization and sector, and we're appreciative of that. So, uh, you know, these are really hugely challenging times. In the context of what they've put forward here, I mean, the fact of the matter is there is unpaid rent uh, during that COVID period, and uh, certainly landlords are looking to collect it. And, uh, you know, when we look at what the options were, uh, uh, you know, we had spoken with the province and really, you know, by and large, we're comfortable with uh, this repayment framework. Uh, I 
feel that our sector can can work with it. And, uh, you know, what's going to be required is what uh, we had suggested uh, and, and supported our members uh, all along uh, from the middle of May. And that, uh, you know, it's all about communicate, communicate, communicate mm-hmm. with your tenants and obviously, you know, show the appropriate amount of compassion. But I think this can work. It's, uh, you know, uh, not going to work for everybody perfectly but uh, by and large we can we can work through this and so what have you heard from landlords about how many of them have been impacted by this in terms of allowing renters to defer allowing tenants making special like you know giving out special circumstances how common do you think that is among the landlords that you've talked to well i mean you know, it's been really hard to get data. Uh, you know, we have 3,300 members, and we've been trying to tap them on a regular basis to to sort of get a, a sense for, uh, you know, how much rent was not collected. Uh, we had uh, strongly encouraged them to, uh, you know, negotiate uh, uh, rent deferral agreements, and and uh, you know, we did uh, uh, see a, a fairly good uptake of that, uh, particularly among the smaller landlords in the early stages, uh, but. You know, again, it's just, it's so variable by almost building by building, build, uh, landlord by landlord. And, you know, some landlords were, you know, seeing, uh, you know, by and large, most of their rent paid. Uh, and and others, you know, uh, really, you know, had much uh, different experience. And the bottom line is there's outstanding uh, balances here that uh, need to be repaid. Uh, and, uh, you know, this is a, a solution that uh, we can we can work with. Are are landlords seeing vacancies? Like are tenants moving? Is there is are, are prices coming down? Are rents coming down? Well, again, it's you know hard to get solid data, but uh, anecdotally, uh, sure. I mean, I think uh, at the higher end of the rental market, uh, there's definitely been an increase in vacancies uh, and uh, you know some softening of rents. But uh, you know, at the end of the day, you know we were. Uh, pre-COVID, we were in effectively a zero vacancy rate. People need a, a, a home. They need to, to, a place to live. Renting is still, a, you know, a, a preferred option for, for many folks. And for some folks, you know, because of the high cost of purchasing housing, uh, you know, uh, the, the only option. So, um, you know, I think it's really early to, to stages here. Um, you know, we're finally moving into, uh, you know, a legitimate restart uh, scenario here now over the next couple of months. And, uh, you know, we're going to watch uh, vacancies and, and prices very closely over the next, you know, 6, 12 months. Okay, so you think the market is in the midst or the beginning of some fluctuations? Oh, absolutely. I think you know, there's some correction occurring here. And, you know, we've lost, uh, uh, you know, international students. Uh, immigration is obviously uh, closed. Uh, certainly, uh, you know, even in the early stages in April, you know, we, we uh, you know, sort of we saw tenants uh, ending their tendencies, uh, you know, uh, local kids, uh, British Columbia, uh, you know, students uh, going back home to the Okanagan or, or wherever to live with their parents, uh, etc. So there's there's definitely impacts here. I mean, and this is the thing we, we've said to our sector all along. I mean, uh, you know, we're not going to be unscathed here. Every sector is being touched and, you know, we need to navigate this uh, through this as, as best we can. And, and obviously we need to work with uh, uh, the province to through that process as well, and so, you know, that's that's what we've been doing all along, and and uh, 
But yeah, it's going to be okay. there's some interesting times ahead of ahead of us. Okay, and interesting times behind us, and yet more to come. David, thank you. Yeah, thank you. Take care. You too. That's David Hutniak, the CEO of Landlord BC. As you heard him say, uh, the landlord side of the equation, they are bracing for changes in the rental market that we have here in British Columbia. That Ahead of us, there's even more change than what we have seen behind us over the last few months. This is Mornings with Simi. Could the worst still be to come when it comes to the rental market here in British Columbia? Well, David Hutniak, that we just who we just spoke to, CEO of Landlords BC, thinks that yeah, there's some upheaval coming in the market still. Now that we also know that there's new rules around landlords and tenants, so the uh, ban on evictions comes to an end in September. And then renters are going to have to start paying back any deferred rent that they had, and that has to be done by next summer. Let's talk more about these new rules now with the help of Selena Robinson, our Minister of Municipal Affairs and Housing. Thank you very much for joining us. Thank you for having me, Simi. Are you worried about the impact on renters with this? Um, well, all of COVID has been very worrying um, from everything from from the health perspective um, and to housing perspective. It's been a very challenging time for everyone. But we're now in phase three, and we are seeing um, the economy slowly pick up. We've seen uh, certainly people getting back to work, with, and we're certainly encouraged by the uh, regained jobs from last month. Um, and we also know that, there, that, that uh, people on all sides of the housing uh, framework, the, the uh, tenancy framework, have been struggling. Um, at, at the same time, we know that 97% of, of renters have been paying uh, a full or partial rent. And so that's encouraging to know that people are are committed to uh, maintaining their landlord um, and tenant relationships. Okay, so was that the number that you kind of based all this on, that 97% of renters are still paying their full rent? Well, 85% are paying full rent, and and another 12 or 13% are paying partial. Um, And we also know that uh, the combination of the temporary rent supplement, the $1,000 BC emergency benefit for workers, and the federal program like the CERB, as well as as the wage subsidy, have have helped people through the most difficult part part of this. But we're also seeing people getting back to uh, regular activity. We're seeing businesses opening up. We're seeing people getting getting, um, hired back. And that is very encouraging. Uh, but we also know that, that landlords have also been, been, been challenged. Mm-hmm. Uh, we have a lot of mom-and-pop landlords, in our, particularly in our secondary market, who you know, have basement suites or, have, uh, or re- rely on some of the rental income, and they've been struggling as well. So what we've done uh, to, to find a, a place and a space to recognize the hardships on, on all those sides is to um, say, okay, uh, moving forward, and we've always said that, that – that um, the tenants are going to be responsible for their arrears. Um, we, we want to have a plan in place, and we're going to create some runway so that people can plan accordingly um, and recognize that this is a relationship between landlords and tenants, and we're encouraging landlords to, to work with their tenants to find um, a repayment framework that, that works for them. And right. so we've put together a minimum framework of 10 months, but it can be extended if, it, if it's going to help good, you know, tenants and keep your tenant, you can certainly go beyond next July. Right. I was wondering, um, is this flexible then as well? Because, you know, well, September, a lot of things are going to change for people. The CERB is going to run out, right? There's the different things are going to start to happen this fall. Kids in school, you know, don't know as many parents are going back to work. So it feels like we still don't know exactly what September is going to look like. We don't know anything about this pandemic. That's been this whole experience, right? It came on us. uh, It felt sudden. 
in, in March, and, and we acted quickly as, as, a, as a government to put things in place, putting in the temporary rent supplement. We're still one of only two provinces that did that to help people manage. And, of course, that comes off of arrears. And so we've, we've done, um, you know, 85,000 British Columbians have benefited from that, helping them with their rent. Um, and, we, we're, you know, we're moving forward and we're turning the dial. We recognize that we're going to keep monitoring how things play out. We recognize there's still uncertainty. But this p- whole pandemic has been uncertain for, for British Columbia and, and globally for the world. Um, and so we're going to keep monitoring. Um, but we also see a little bit about how well British Columbians have done. I, I, I take a look and I know that others are watching south of the border mm-hmm. and, and it creates so much anxiety just watching it. And I'm so thankful for British Columbians, <laughs> pardon me, and their commitment to take care of each other and to keep distance and to, to make the right decisions for their families. All and right. that's a good thing. Okay. Um, thank you so much for joining us this morning. Thank, thank you for having me. Take that care. is Selena Robinson, Minister of Municipal Affairs and Housing. Lots going to change in the fall. So I think that's something increasingly knowing now what we see, we're going to be taking a very close look at, right? Now you've got the thing, the relationship changing for landlords and tenants, uh, you know, no more ban on evictions, things changing, uh, renters having to pay back uh, if they did defer their rent payments. Uh, and is everybody going back to work in September and end of the CERB? So many questions with that. If you want to weigh in, Simi at cknw.com. This is Mornings with Simi. We need to make sure that everyone understands that if you're going to be getting into a plane, if you're going to be getting on to transit, it's a good idea to wear a mask. It's a good idea to be respectful of the people around you and keep as much distance as possible. That is Premier John Horgan talking about airlines. I got to tell you, this story just drives me crazy. It has been driving me crazy for a week or two now, but it has been almost impossible for us to get somebody on to talk about it. We have repeatedly tried to get some kind of representative of the airlines or the association for airlines on the show, uh, they are not making anybody available at all. The question being, is it safe to fly right now? Airlines want things to loosen up even more so that they can put more people on airplanes and not necessarily, you know, with that idea of a 14 day quarantine hanging over travelers either. We've got even more flights that are affected by this. BC Center for Disease Control said yesterday they've got even more flights listed where somebody may have come into contact with a person who has COVID 19. So let's talk about this. Travel Best Bets President Claire Newell joins us now to discuss how airlines are dealing with this. Claire, thanks for joining us on this. Oh, hey, Simi. Yeah, no, it's my pleasure. It's a it's a tough situation. You're dealing with um, airlines that are doing their best to recover during this pandemic and fly as safely as they possibly can. And you mentioned that the airlines are also urging the federal government to actually um, go to you know, more destinations and lift this huge, this, we have a blanket um, travel restriction basically that says avoid non-essential travel. Um, They are not proposing relaxing the U S border restrictions. You know, they, what they're asking, the airlines are asking is to look to create safe corridors. So that is, you know, science-based and look at the places that are safe, just Mm -hmm. kind of, kind of what, um, the UK has done and Europe has done. There's, you know, a, a list of say 14 countries that are, that are safe. That's what they're asking. Right. As far as the airlines, what they're doing, um, we, 
we've had many people in the in the travel industry go on board flights. In fact, Air Canada had a couple of flights yesterday, one that was based out of Toronto, one that was based out of Vancouver. I unfortunately couldn't go, but to show what they're doing on board. So both Air Canada and WestJet are doing what the government is recommending, and then they're going above and beyond. You know, there's pre-boarding temperature checks, masks, um, sanitation kits are handed out. Right. They're scaling back but- in-flight service. The one thing that, sorry, sorry, Sammy, one of the things that, um, that Bonnie Henry mentioned yesterday is that what she, she said flat out, be honest about, um, about it. And if you are not feeling well, we need to have the ability post- to postpone or change our flights. And that's something that I'm hoping that the airlines are doing. Looking at the policies, I don't know if you say, you know, I don't feel that well. Exactly. If they're going to allow you to go on a different flight or not. But if you feel sick, you can't travel. You're you're putting other people at risk. One of the other things that I was um, concerned about is figuring out if I was on a plane and I had somebody that was sick around me, I want to know um, that I could be reached. You know, when you go into a restaurant, they take yeah. your name and number right now. Yeah. So tracking of that's really important. And I did speak to somebody yesterday who was going on a flight to Toronto. Needed They wanted to go and meet their grandchild for the first time. <laughs> and so they've been waiting for a long time, um, ended up making the call to go. There weren't a lot of people around them, but they moved seats once they were on board. So that's something that's concerning me. I want to make sure that the airlines are actually identifying people and so that if there is an outbreak or someone has it, that the people around could be contacted. Listen, I think airlines, though, Claire, are looking at this from a business perspective, right? Of course they are. Of course. But I I think they're misreading the Canadian public on this because I think if you ask the Canadian public, they're going to say, we don't want more people arriving here from other countries. No, and the the reality is is that we've been getting people here from other countries for since the beginning of the pandemic. Flights have not stopped coming in. Oh, I know, and I get emails about that from people almost every day saying, "Why so are do we I. doing this? Why are we doing this? We shouldn't be doing this." I know. Well, the you know, I'm in a catch twenty two. I see yes, the airlines' point of view. Um, I also you know know what they're doing. You know, the whole, I've been on the one end of this whole um, middle seat. Should they be blocked or should they not? But I think you and I have even talked about this. I've talked about it so often on interviews. If you block someone on the middle seat and you're in the aisle and someone is at the window, you're 18 inches apart from that person at the window. You can reach out and touch them. You can touch the people in front of you, behind you. What's it going to take? I mean, the airlines are doing, we actually had someone on uh, with Charles Adler and myself. uh, It was a flight attendant who was explaining what they're doing. I mean, sanitizing the planes in between. It's incredible. But is it enough, though, because we still get all these COVID alerts? It's human. It's a human issue. It's kind of like when you make a mistake on the computer and you're like, oh, actually, it was human error. It's not the computer. This is you're not wearing masks. You're not cleaning your surfaces well enough. And and you're you're going on board when you're feeling potentially sick. Okay. Um, So I I don't know. It is very, very tough. Um, it's a conundrum. I wouldn't want to be in the in the in the middle trying to figure out where is the common ground right. to keep the airlines going and people moving because there are I know people who want to travel so badly. Yeah, and I know, they can't. but I, exactly. I just it's it's so tough right now. Claire, it thank is. you very much for talking to us okay, about it. My pleasure.
Simi. That's Claire Newell, the president of Travel Best Bets, talking about that tough space between the airlines and the public and how we're feeling and yet all these alerts coming of people with COVID-19 on airplanes. How do you feel about that? This is Mornings with Simi. I think we're making that Carson Arthur's theme song because it's just so great and so perfect. Well, what's on your mind when it comes to gardening? What's growing? What's not? Let's find out. Carson Arthur, our outdoor design and lifestyle expert from HGTV, joins us now. Hi, Carson. Hello, my dear. How are you? I am good. My tomatoes are growing. Everything is good. How how are things growing at your house? Hot and sweaty. Oh, wait, that's just my waistline. Uh, no, everything's <laughs> going great right now. We are having a fantastic summer ahead. Well, that's right. You are because you're in southern Ontario. So you're you guys have been under a bit of a heat wave. We are. But I've actually been back and forth across the country, believe it or not, uh, doing some stuff, even with COVID. I've been practicing safe traveling practices, uh, but I've been checking out on everybody. And, and across the country, Canadians are doing OK in their vegetable gardens this year. Okay, let's start with that then. Now, my tomatoes are growing fine, but I've had a couple of emails from people uh, who say theirs are not. I'm just going to start with this one that I've got here from Alan. And by the way, I should mention, if people have gardening questions, uh, you know what, we'll open up the phones here if they want to call 604-280-9898, or they can drop me an email, simi at cknw.com. So Alan writes to say, I have two cherry tomato plants on my balcony facing south and west, They've been doing well until recently. Lots of flowers, no fruit formation, and many leaves are turning yellow. What's going on there? Mm-hmm. It sounds like the containers that he may have planted in uh, might need a little soil revitalization. Often when we plant tomatoes in containers, we forget about the fact that can- tomatoes are the hungriest of the vegetables. They like lots of nutrients. So if we put them in soil in a pot... Um, we have to continually add fertilizer. And when the tomatoes aren't getting it, that's what happens. They start turning yellow. The flowers will fall off because they think, okay, I don't have enough energy to turn the flowers into fruit. So that would be my first thing. Definitely fertilize. The second thing is I would be practicing some different watering techniques. So water every single morning, just in the morning at 9 a.m. or 10 a.m. and not again for the rest of the day to let the pots dry out nicely in between waterings. That'll go a long way, too, to have consistency for your fruit. Ah, okay. That's good advice. Hey, and I've got like four different tomato plants growing right now, and they're all all knockwood, seem to be doing fine. How do you feel about um, like trimming the plants? Do you you take all the suckers off, right? I don't, actually. What? Uh, But there's there's a, yeah, there's a reason why I don't. I have 45 tomato plants right now. Oh, so if I was sucker pruning, I would be at it forever. Uh, the reality is, and studies have shown that the impact that pruning the suckers have on the tomato plants themselves is pretty minimal. It doesn't actually do much to increase production of the tomatoes. What it does is allow a little extra sun inside so your tomatoes will ripen faster. In my case, because I have so many plants, I don't want them to ripen faster. I want them to go slow all summer long so that I don't end up with 5,000 tomatoes all being, you know, on my dining room table at the same time. Okay. What, the 45 tomato plants. I'm still trying to wrap my head around that. What? How, I, like, what, what? I like to make pasta sauce. <laughs> what varieties do you have there? So I, I do a lot of heirloom varieties, and every year I play with some different ones. This one, this year, the reason I have so many is we're doing a big um, food bank drive for tomato pasta sauce. 
So we're growing a lot of Roma tomatoes for the food bank, which is why there's so many. Mm-hmm. Um, I do some of the ones that I'm excited about this year. I'm doing indigo apple, which is an heirloom cherry tomato. Uh, I've got um, a green striped tiger, which is a real beautiful one forming up nicely. Um, Siberian tiger is another one that I love, which is pink on the bottom, black on the shoulders with cool striping. Having fun this year. Okay, it sounds like it. So where should our gardens be at right now? Like what should we be harvesting or close to harvesting? Well, beans should have already been uh, happening for most people. I know there's some people in your area that are a little slower with their bean production uh, because of a little bit of the cloudy weather. But beans right now, peas should be done. Beets, people are starting to take out of the garden. I'm starting to see first flushes of carrots coming out, which is exciting. And tomatoes, as you mentioned, they should be really starting to form up. You should start seeing some tomatoes on your plants. And some of the varieties like Early Girl, you may have already had some ripe ones. Oh, okay. Yeah, mine are still flowering. I'm keeping a very close eye on them. Um, I had another email here from someone wanting some help with their basil plant. And they said, help, our basil plant is being eaten by something. Any ideas Mm. on recovery and how much watering? (laughs) That's such a tricky question. It's like, okay, so something's eating my plant, but we don't know what it is. And there's so many things that like basil, unfortunately. So, uh, what I like to say is a general rule of thumb is I use something called diatomaceous powder. And I think I've mentioned it before on the yeah. show, but diet, yeah, it's made of ground seashells. And it works really, really well on things like slugs, on any hard-bodied insects like beetles, because what it does is it actually scratches the exoskeleton. So it, it causes them to leak out all the nutrients. So the bugs, the insects, they don't have a chance to really do the damage that they might. And because it's ground seashells, you can actually find food grade, which makes it safe for your basil plants. So I would start with that first. And if your plant is in trouble, obviously fertilize, fertilize, fertilize. That is the key to getting more leaves from your basil plant. Okay. And how often should we be fertilizing? As I've said, I've got a bunch of tomato plants. I fertilized them, you know, about three weeks ago, four weeks ago. How often should I be doing that? And this is a bit of a tricky conversation because Uh, chemical-based fertilizers are actually absorbed by the plants much faster, which is great for the plant, bad for us, because we don't want to be eating chemicals in our food. So if you have chemical fertilizer, then you can do it once, maybe once more in a few weeks, but that's it. You don't have to do it often. Whereas organic fertilizers, fertilizers from manure or from garden compost, take significantly longer for the plant to absorb it into its system. So you want to be fertilizing a little more often with a little bit more regularity, which is going to add the nutrients that your plant needs, even though it's a little bit of a slower process. Okay. And I have to tell you, I got another email uh, from Jamie. And Jamie, actually, when you were on last year talking gardening with us, he said, I asked about flea beetles. Last year, got advice from Carson. He said, no beetles this year. And then he sent me a beautiful picture of his garden, and he's very happy with it. He said it looks great this year. That's amazing. Yeah, flea beetles are such a problem. And for any of the listeners who aren't familiar with them, they're little tiny, tiny beetles. They're about the size of the top of a pinhead, and they drill straight through a leaf. So you'll get, it's almost like your leaves have been in a hailstorm of little tiny hail, because it looks like they just ate straight through little bullet shots. Uh, And the best way to get rid of them, again, is that diatomaceous powder and row covers. So using almost like mosquito netting to create mesh coverings over your plants. Huh. Okay. Is it too late to plant things in the year now? Like if people hear this and think, well, I would like to plant a few things, like what can they still get in on? Well, the good news is it's not too late. There's lots of things that you can plant at this time of year. I do a lot of work with West Coast Seeds out of Delta, BC. And what's nice about West Coast Seeds is on their packages at the bottom, you'll see days to maturity. And you can actually get seeds right now 
that only take 25, 35, 45 days. And we still have lots of summer and harvest time ahead of us. So if you stay in that window, so 25, 35, 45, things like carrots, beets, radishes, uh, lettuces, spinach, all of those, you can still get a lot of produce before the end of season. Okay, that's good to know then, because I know there was a lot of rush to garden earlier. Do you think people are sticking with it? What are you hearing from people? I'm seeing a lot of people, first-time gardeners, really excited about the produce that they're harvesting this year, which is amazing. So I'm seeing a lot of pictures on Instagram and social media accounts of their first zucchini or their first tomatoes. And I think that's fantastic. I hope that enthusiasm continues going forward. And, and I think people need to realize, too, that even if this is your first time and you're not having the success you want, you have to stay with it. You have to figure out what's going to be the best plants for your space for your garden, for your growing conditions, for your area. And then once you get that figured out, every single year you're going to have a bigger and more plentiful bounty. Are you already looking ahead to fall? Uh, it's a little scary to say this, but yes. <laughs> I, I <laughs> am. What do well, those preparations look like? So I, I have a retail store, which is a little garden center, and we are starting to bring in fall product and fall um, preserve, like preserving techniques skills uh, in the sense that we've got classes coming up from Bernadette where we're teaching people how to can. So all of the canning materials are coming oh, nice. in and the jars. Yeah. This is all about what to do with your food once you've grown it. So yeah, we're at that stage right now, which is so scary to think about. Okay. So that's the next thing now. So the, so the mm-hmm. spring and early summer was all about how to garden if you've never gardened before. And now the next thing is going to be, we're all going to get back into, we're going to take our attention from the sourdough bread to learning how to can. Yeah, well, it's true. Preserves and making your own pickles and jams. It's going to be the biggest trend for fall. I'm predicting it now. You heard it from me first. Oh, boy. Everybody is is really paying attention to what's happening, happening on a global scale with COVID. And food production is going to definitely be front and foremost in people's conversations, especially when we continue to go to the grocery store and see empty shelves. So, oh, I any, think you're right. Yeah. I think you're right. Where can people you find can, you, Carson? I'm at CarsonArthur.com. Easy breezy. Okay, and you know what? And I tell people this all the time. You are very good at responding to people. Like, it may take a while, but you're doing it. I Well, I like to say I try and do it within 24 hours. So it won't even take that long. Yeah, I I really feel like if somebody takes the time to reach out and says they need help, then I want to respond. You are a good person. Carson, thank you so much for being with us. My pleasure. Thank you. Have a good growing season. That's Carson Arthur, our outdoor design and lifestyle expert.